So when was America last great? What's interesting about our country, if you study history, is that uh, there are some isms that occasionally pop up. One is isolationism, and it's evil twin protectionism, and it's evil triplet nativism. Anti-immigrant groups quickly formed and began to call themselves nativists. You had to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant to ascend to almost any position of power in America until the early 1960s. Nativism is not just simply the irrational hatred of newcomers and fear of foreigners and fear of people who are different. Not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The 11 million who broke these laws should be held accountable. The bipartisan war on immigrants was launched with a bipartisan popular basis. It had, if you look at public opinion polling in the early 90s, you have similar very high percentages of Democrats and Republican voters who have negative feelings, who report negative feelings towards immigration generally. And so between then and now, we go from very little fencing on the U.S. border to more than 650 miles, I believe, particularly thanks to the Secure Fence Act of 2006. Can I just say very simply, doesn't he show his birth certificate? Isolationism, protectionism, nativism. I'm a little concerned that we may be going through the same period. I hope that these isms pass. Hello and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. In this series, we'll bring you fresh insights and knowledge from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbors through their stories. Today, we're thrilled to have a guest host. Dr. Stephanie DeGoye will be in conversation with Daniel Denver, where they'll be talking about American nativism. Stephanie's a visiting fellow at Harvard University, where she's also a faculty affiliate with us at the Immigration Initiative. Her research focuses on intersections between transatlantic literature, law, and political philosophy, with a focus on citizenship and immigration. She's the co-author with Verso Books of The Right to Have Rights. In a bit, you'll hear Stephanie talk to Daniel Denver. Daniel is a fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute and host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. He's also author of the great new book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. So what is nativism? Nativism can loosely be defined as a policy of protecting the interests of native-born or established inhabitants above those of immigrants. It's a kind of, well, us first. In popular debates today, the term nativism is often conflated with white supremacist ideology, anti-immigrant sentiment and racism. Nativism is an almost exclusively American concept that's rarely discussed in Western Europe. In fact, I'd hardly come across it myself before I moved to the US. Somewhat confusingly for foreigners like me, nativism is an ism that has nothing to do with autochthony or claims of indigenous Americans. Quite the contrary. The term became popularized in the 1840s and 1850s, where it gained its name from Native American political parties that represented descendants from inhabitants of the original 13 colonies that settled in territories in parts of what is now the United States. And yes, these were the same colonies that displaced a huge number of indigenous peoples. Indeed, these preliminary encounters between Native Americans and the colonists laid the foundation for a tradition of oppression and land grabbing that repeated time and time again in US history. But that's a discussion for another episode. The immigrants who organized the Nativist 13 American colonies were mostly English. So for the first several decades after independence from Great Britain in 1776, the great majority of US citizens were white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, sometimes known as WASPs. 
The term nativism gained traction among Protestant Americans from the mid-19th century onwards in response to arrivals of immigrants from other cultures, including the Irish and German Catholics. They were seen as disloyal to the American Republic ideal. It was us versus them. There are similarities between the nativism of the 1870 to 1930 period and today. The idea that certain immigrants can't assimilate and ideas they're a danger or threat to native-born populations. Trumpism is seen by many as the ultimate other-fearing nativist ideology. Others use the term majority ethnic nationalism. In this podcast series, we've heard firsthand of the damaging impact of Trump's rhetoric and policy on the nation's immigrants. Ice raids, deportations, deaths at the border. For many of us, it's a shocking new reality. So how, if at all, can we make sense of it? How did this US brand of nationalism come xenophobia, we might call nativism, come to prominence as a political focus in the US? Trump claims to make America something again, but what was it before that was so different? Is Trumpism really a bolt from the blue? Or is his hardline approach, in many ways, a continuation of American nativism that goes back to settler colonialism? And more recently, in their efforts to appease nativist voters with harsher and harsher immigration reforms, to what extent did Clinton, Bush and Obama pave the way for this? And what can tracing the genealogy of US nativism tell us about the future of immigrants' rights and politics in the USA? Join Stephanie and Daniel as they dive into these questions and more. Hello, this is Stephanie DeGoyer. Today I'm going to be talking to Dan about his new book, All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It out now with Verso Books. Hello, Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, agreeing to do this. You were in the middle of a book tour before the shutdowns across America occurred and didn't quite get to finish it. So I'm hoping our conversation today will provide a little gap for folks who didn't get to see you across the nation in person. Thank you. I would not let a global pandemic stop me from telling other people about my book, so I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Great. So I want to start our conversation by talking about the overall claim of the book. In the intro, you argue that Trump's rhetoric and policies about immigration, shocking as they may seem to many liberals, are not new. In fact, Trump's hardline stance on immigration is a continuation of a very long line of American nativism that goes back to settler colonialism. I just wanted to begin by having you speak a little more about how you chose to frame the book historically and why you wanted to give it such a long history. I mean, you start in the 19th century before moving to the 60s and then the 90s and then now. So yeah, if you could just talk about why you wanted to give such a long arc to the project. Yeah, so when Trump was in the process of winning the Republican nomination in 2016, a commonplace response from many liberal detractors was that this is not normal. And on the one hand, I want to more generously note that this often reflects a notion that a sentiment that this should not be normal. It should not be normal to announce your presidential campaign by calling Mexican migrants rapists and criminals. But unfortunately, it also conveyed precisely what it sounds like it conveyed, which is that this is actually an aberration. This is a good, not racist country. How did we get this bad 
racist president. And so I tell a history of nativism, of a certain type of racial population politics as a way to smooth over the contradictions of American political economy and empire. I tell a story of that being old, old in two senses, one a deeper sense and one a more proximate sense. The older sense, as you mentioned, is in the sense that this sort of racial population politics was a fundamental organizing principle of the colonization of North America and then westward expansion after the country was founded, which, as Paul Freimer details in his book, Building This American Empire, was a very carefully and explicitly organized project of moving particular numbers of white people into particular territories. And once those territories were held securely, pushing the white frontier further west, this was a logic embedded in the country's first naturalization law passed shortly after the revolution, which opened citizenship to free white people. This was the logic that organized the exclusion of first Chinese in 1882 and then pretty much all other Asians through the 1920s when nativist policy was extended to cover disfavored Europeans who, within eugenical frameworks, were deemed not entirely white or not white at all. And so we had an entirely, thoroughly, explicitly racist immigration policy through 1965. And then it's also true in the more proximate sense that since the 1990s, leaders of both major parties, the Republicans and Democrats, have been engaged in sort of contest to see who can convince the American people that they will ensure their security through securing them from the dangers posed by immigrants. And this was a core part of the war on undocumented immigrants, the war on quote-unquote illegal immigration. And the war on immigrants has also been a core facet of the war on crime and the rise of mass incarceration. And after September 11th, the war on terror, which sort of joined the longer-running stigmatization and demonization of Mexican migrants with a not entirely but somewhat novel Islamophobia that was used as the dominant interpretive framework to understand the utter failure of the war on terror. So in short, my argument is that Trump is a creature of American history, which should be obvious, but American exceptionalism makes it not obvious to many people, and that it is American politics and history at its most ordinary prior to 2016, which built the institutions and passed the laws through which Trump has waged his war on immigrants, and that created the politics that has allowed for Trump's rhetoric to resonate as widely as it unfortunately has. You know, one of the things about the longer historical view that you offer is that, um, and this goes to the title of the book too, it makes it really hard to understand what nativism is, because we think we know who nativists are, right? A nativist is John Tanton, a white nationalist, founder of an anti-immigrant group. But at one point you say in the book, you know, Ronald Reagan is not a nativist. He signed the Immigration Reform and Control Act in 1968, which legalized 2.7 million immigrants. And then as you show in later chapters, Clinton and Obama were in many ways appropriating nativism in their immigration bills. So how do you or do you seek to define nativism in the book? And who isn't, in a way, a nativist? Well, there's a sort of conventional way for liberals to look at radical right-wing politics and white supremacist politics more generally, which is to see it sort of as a product of, of fringe groups, of hate groups, as something that's very other from ordinary and everyday 
politics. I perhaps somewhat unfairly tend to think of that as sort of like SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center, anti-racism, though to be fair, like I, I have relied a lot on SPLC's research, but this idea that it's like the Klan that is the standard for racism and thus Trump's proximity to these more overt white nationalists make it seem, I think, to a lot of liberals, like the way to understand the racism of the Trump administration is to understand it as these far-right kind of neo-Nazi type alt-right groups having a foothold in the right house, like the right, the extreme right having secured this beachhead in the highest office in the world. I mean, that's not entirely wrong. People like Stephen Miller are very closely connected to, for example, the Tanton Network, the web of anti-immigrant institutions that, beginning with the foundation of the Federation for American Immigration Reform in 1979, has come to encompass basically every significant anti-immigrant group in this country. They are, in turn, have all kinds of ties to the more explicitly white nationalist right over the years. And John Tangent has expressed, or did express before he died recently, brazenly, nakedly white supremacist sentiment. But what I'm more interested in is the way that three different sorts of politics relate to and thus mutually constitute one another, which is on the one hand, the sort of organized fringe white supremacist right, the more ordinary and still plenty extreme conservatism of the contemporary Republican Party, and then also the law and order and national security state politics of the supposedly purportedly anti-racist party, the Democratic Party, which in fact as I mentioned earlier, beginning and especially under the Clinton administration, what the Clinton administration did at a time of pervasive, long-running economic stagnation, insecurity, anxiety about people's place in a globalizing, suddenly unipolar world, fixated people's fears on the fear of the immigrant invader, of the criminal, of the welfare cheat, and thus cooperated, in a sense, in a competitive manner with Republicans and with the organized far right in painting a very particular picture of what the threats were and what security would look like. And what that story was doing was very, in particular, not telling another sort of story, because that story would call into question the basic consensus between the two major parties on what sort of economy we have in this country. So instead, they engage in a process of one-upping one another to see who could appear tougher on crime, tougher on the border, tougher on, quote-unquote, illegal immigrants, tougher on the war on terror. I mean, just to give a concrete example here, we often think of Islamophobia, or we often thought at least of Islamophobia, as the provenance of sort of a particular lunatic evangelical preachers who would say, who would like burn, you know, burn the Koran and start riots in Afghanistan when they did so. And all of these things from about a decade ago as this kind of really fringe extreme behavior that was finding growing support amongst the right wing fringes of Republican Party leadership. But the actual history of where the contemporary Islamophobia that helped bring Trump to office comes from is entirely different from what people suspect. It comes very fundamentally and directly from the official war on terror launched by the Bush administration and supported on a broad bipartisan basis in Congress. That war on terror was launched in the name of helping Muslims, of rescuing Muslims. It might seem absurd in retrospect. It seemed absurd to me at the time. But... That is how Bush sold the war on terror, through the neoconservative framework of liberating Muslims, not of launching a crusade against them. And in fact, the public polling on this is remarkable. 
Republican favorability towards Muslims skyrocket after September 11th. Republicans become express to pollsters far more favorability towards Muslims after the attacks of September 11th. And so all of this potential Islamophobia is channeled, sublimated even into the war on terror. And then when the war on terror falls apart in mid-2004, 2005, 2006, that's when we see Islamophobia emerge as a popular form of Islamophobia once it can no longer be contained within a war on terror that no longer has popular legitimacy. So this is like a concrete case of where politics at its most official directly led to the creation and propagation intensification of the most kind of iconically extremist right-wing white supremacist sort of bigotry. It didn't come from the Klansmen first in this case. I mean, there's so much to talk about. The book is so rich and defies, as you just explained, simple narratives and understandings of rhetoric and policies around immigration. But nonetheless, as you suggested at the beginning, Trump does something. He performs something, if not unique to him, at least outwardly. And at one point, you beautifully say this in the book. I want to talk about the wall for a second. You say, in recent decades, the border has become more of an idea than a place. And of course, we can say the same about the wall, that the wall is a performance. It's not a structure. There's already a literal wall at the border, right? I mean, it's been there. <laughs> yeah. Signed yeah. into law by Bush, supported in the Senate by right. in 2006 by Barack Obama, Joe Biden, right. Clinton. So what does the wall perform for Trump? I mean... Why is it such an irresistible frame for him? And, and we can talk about this in a second. He's still using this in the context of the pandemic, too, right? Build the wall, build the wall. What does it do for him and other nativists? Can you explain that a little bit or talk about it some more? Yeah. Um, can I briefly read a passage from the book and then expand on it? Please. That would be great. I think this is from my conclusion. The wall is a structure of political feeling. It is a sadistic, gleeful performance of transgression against political correctness, a proud insistence on the very idea that Mexicans are rapists and criminals. These are notions that draw much of their emotive force from the offense they caused to liberal propriety. Even though it was liberal leaders who energetically helped criminalize immigrants for decades, the wall has come to stand in for Trump himself, and thus for the entirety of the politics of white nationalist grievance that he singularly embodies. By contrast, boring policy measures that might actually preserve a white majority are drowned out by soliloquies sung to a giant real estate development project. Quote, We want that stuff too, but we also want a wall, said Ann Coulter. The chant at every campaign rally wasn't enforce verify When it comes to popular appeal, what matters most is performance, not policy. And so what I'm writing about there is the fact that the organized native is an irony, that the organized nativists from the get-go were extremely kind of rational and hard-nosed at what they wanted to achieve, which was an end, and is, all but an end to immigration as we've known it, shutting off not only undocumented immigration, but legal immigration, because they know that the majority of immigrants and the majority of the demographic change that they so oppose is caused by legal immigration, not by undocumented immigration. But the way that the war on immigrants has been waged since the 1990s for a lot of complex reasons has been particularly against undocumented immigrants. The war on immigration in general has become a war against quote-unquote illegal immigrants in particular. Beginning in the 1990s, and Peter Andreas really powerfully makes this analysis in his book Border Games in the 1990s, this led the Clinton administration to engage in a series of performances of security at the border, which simultaneously conveyed a sense that the border had finally been put under control, 
while also laying the groundwork for new crises and new scenes of insecurity across the border later on. And so what we've seen time and again since the 1990s are these performances of these crackdowns that are meant to convey to the American public that the border is being secured and thus that their lives more generally are being made more secure. But every crackdown fails, if not immediately, then ultimately. And in failing, it ups the ante for what sort of crackdown will be required to finally deliver the promised security, by and large, does not lead to any sort of fundamental reexamination of the premise of the very logic of border security. Instead, when 5,000 border patrol agents don't work, 10,000 are called for, then 15,000, and today we have near 20,000, more than quintupled, if I remember correctly, since 1993. The same logic has played out with fencing law on the U.S.-Mexican border from just a few miles in the early 1990s to, I think, over 650 miles today. And so even Obama, who was participating in this escalation, saw on some level what was going on. He didn't really let it change his policy. In 2011, he gave a speech in El Paso where he was lamenting the inability to convince right-wing Republicans that the border had been secured. He said, quote, We have gone above and beyond what was requested by the very Republicans who said they supported broader reform as long as we got serious about enforcement. All the stuff they asked for, we've done. But even though we've answered these concerns, I've got to say I suspect there are still going to be some who are trying to move the goalposts on us one more time. They said we needed to triple the Border Patrol, or now they're going to say we need to quadruple the Border Patrol. Or they'll want a higher fence. Maybe they'll need a moat. Maybe they'll want alligators in the moat. They'll never be satisfied. It would be a funny and smart analysis if it was coming from anyone but Barack Obama, who failed to understand that he was part of the very process that was moving the goalpost. This whole politics of escalatory security performance of the 1990s and 2000s under Bush and then Obama turned into an effort to perform security to convince right-wing Republicans who opposed any legalization effort of the credibility of the security project, accepting the right-wing premise that border security was a prerequisite for any sort of immigration reform. But each time that Bush or Obama, through whatever internal or border enforcement escalation, instead of ever achieving any sort of credibility with the nativist right, they just assisted, accidentally or otherwise, the nativist right in moving the goalposts towards increasingly surreal security extremes. And so the Overton window on what border security meant had moved so far to the right by the time of the 2016 election that for many Americans, Donald Trump's maximalist promise of a literal brick-and-mortar wall across the entire border, this hermetic ceiling of the country, made sense. It was the only escalation left. Ironically, it's a totally symbolic escalation. Not that it won't cause all sorts of human and ecological damage as well, but it's a by and large symbolic escalation because what the nativists really want is what Trump is finally amid this pandemic and recently in the last year starting to deliver, which is more significant cuts to legal immigration. The organized nativists couldn't care less about the wall. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, now, but I want to talk about now later. Um, it's <laughs> specifically the immigration freeze and what you were just referring to. But before we do, there's a question I want to ask, because in the book, you do say several times that Trump even admits that during his rallies, if people look sleepy or bored, he just says, build the wall and they snap too, you know, and they're with him and they have energy 
this is a book, it's about a war on immigrants, as you say in the title, and it's about politics. But there's a brief moment in the book where you talk about the 2005 May Day protests. And you mentioned them a few times, actually. And I know that you don't go into as much detail about them because this isn't a book about protest, right? It's about policy in a way. But these protests you mentioned are the beginning of a mass contemporary fight for immigration. And I'm wondering, this is just an opinion outside of the book, but where is immigration activism now for you? And is Trump giving it a boost? Where do you see it now? Um, I know the May Day protests were seismic for you. Are we approaching that kind of territory again? What do you think? Um, I don't think so. I think that the Obama administration was far better for immigrant rights organizing than the Trump administration has been, which is not any like kind of ethical or moral credit to Barack Obama as a person or Mm. to liberal politics as an institution. It's that the particular way that anti-immigrant repression was unleashed under Obama and the contradictions that emerged as a result of that within the Democratic coalition allowed space for the militant wing of the immigrant rights movement to exploit the resulting contradictions and achieve significant curbs in Obama's mass deportation campaign by the time he left office. Really significant victories. Huge numbers of people who otherwise would have been deported were not because, again, organized, savvy activists on the left wing of the immigrant rights movement, the militant wing, exploited the contradictions of a president who depends on the Latino electorate deporting record numbers of people, exploited that the contradictions inherent in that to secure massive victories. There's just no such dynamic under Trump, who operates under the general Republican electoral calculus of, as I say in my book, mobilizing white fear and grievance into an electoral force, scaring just enough ancient reactionaries out of their Fox News facing recliners and into the polls to eke out popular vote losing electoral college victories. It's a long term problem for Trump and the Republican Party that they depend on such a narrow and declining as a proportion of the overall share of the population demographic for a huge proportion of their support. But it's also the only thing that they can do. In the past, after Mitt Romney lost in 2012, there was this famous official Republican Party postmortem of the election that found that it was Mitt Romney's call for self-deportation that led him to lose Latinos and young people, et cetera, et cetera. And it became briefly conventional wisdom that the Republican Party had to figure out how to be a, a multiracial big tent party. But of course, that's possible because the core of their base depends on being appealed to in certain ways that make it impossible to appeal to a big tent and that'll work for them as long as it does so under trump as a result like there's no component party of the republican coalition who is really offended by the war on undocumented immigrants what they are offended by are the efforts to cut legal immigration and this is where like true potential contradictions within the Republican conservative coalition could become manifest because historically under both Democrats and Republicans, business doesn't care about border security theater as long as they get guest workers. You know, it was in the World War One era. It was the first Red Scare, according to the political scientist Daniel Teichner, it was the first Red Scare that finally pushed business to defect from the kind of pro-immigrant coalition of the time. And and it was that, he argues, that allowed for the national origins quotas, these sharply restrictive racist immigration policies that were the law of the land from the 1920s through 1965 that finally allowed those to pass. So, so far as yet, the power of business has sort of defined the contours of nativist policy in this country 
We're living in a moment of crisis, though, and it's always possible that this crisis, such an acute crisis, will change the contours of that balance of power within the Republican Party, especially because business gets most everything else it wants. So maybe they'll put up with a hit on immigration. But that said, when Trump recently all but suspended immigration on the pretext of an economic and public health response to COVID-19, he very revealingly ultimately include an exemption for guest worker programs, which suggests that the power of business is still decisive. That might change, but that's the case for now. Guest worker visas are okay. Business prevails, right? But green cards are not right. for families. So in this kind of double move, this late night Twitter style of his, he's simultaneously, or so it seems to me, trying to satisfy racists and business, right? He's trying to give at least the performance of a complete ban. And then a kind of backroom negotiation to ensure that business. Would you say that that's right? Is it working, this sort of double dance? Is there any strategy to this? I mean, so far, so good for Mm -hmm. him. The only thing that would push this to a point of conflict with business interests would be if organized conservative groups and right-wing media, namely Fox News and talk radio luminaries like Rush Limbaugh, made it a priority issue, but they're not fundamentally concerned with this stuff. Like the quote from Ann Coulter I read earlier, she wants the racist symbolism. That's what she's there for because that's what works at the rally because that's what powers all of their personality brands and Republican electoral politics. They're not necessarily true believers the way someone who works for FAIR or CIS, these John Tanton Network organizations are. You know, we saw that play out in the government shutdown fight over wall funding, which people from Numbers USA and CIS openly described as not actually a fight over immigration policy as far as they were concerned. But that was the fight that institutionally benefits Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and Republican politics. And so as long as that's the case... I think that the bulk of the organized right and their media institutions are going to be perfectly happy to have a fight to preserve immigration as a culture war issue that doesn't touch business's bottom line. You do end the book with some kind of optimism, which I feel like the reader needs. But since you've written the book, so much has happened, and not just the pandemic, but the elections with Biden sitting one could say maybe comfortably as the presumptive Democratic candidate. In many ways, I think this book, even if it doesn't attend to this next chapter in history, is the way we could look to sort of read the tea leaves on what may happen. So I want to ask you a little bit. You end the book and you say that one good thing about Trump is that immigration debate in America is now deeply polarizing. And you you talk about this quite often. And more and more Democrats are opposed to anti-immigration policies, policies that kind of went unnoticed, for example, under Obama, and have been horrified by things like family separation policy, which is not solely unique to Trump's administration. So you end with a very clear message. And that message is, we on the left, we Democrats, we can't work with Republicans. We have to oust them. We can't try and feed the beast. It will never be fed, right? We have to oust them. So that's how you end. Where do you see that going? It's a very good question. I get a lot of questions about the optimism, caveated optimism of my conclusion. And I guess what I'm most optimistic about and that I expressed in the conclusion is the clarity of the situation, that Republicans cannot be 
negotiated and compromised with. And I don't just say that as some kind of feel-good radical statement. It's something that's been historically demonstrated by the last 20 or so years of American politics and that I explicate and demonstrate and substantiate extensively in my book. So that's the conclusion I come from after laying out the fact that the entire the historical record, which shows that Bush, Obama, and other establishment Democrats and Republicans' efforts to win right-wing Republicans over to reform through escalations and increasingly escalating crackdowns on immigrants, not only didn't win Republicans over, but further radicalized both right-wing Republicans and the general trajectory of U.S. politics and institutions as a whole in a more anti-immigrant direction. So it accomplished precisely the opposite of what at least purportedly set out to do the whole comprehensive immigration reform agenda. And so I think it's very clear that the only way that there will be justice and freedom for immigrants in this country is if Republicans are defeated. I think that's also clearly true for every single good thing, almost, that I can think of, that Republicans will need to be defeated. Not only that, but the very sort of democratic politics that have enabled the radicalization of Republican politics, that has to go too. So there's optimism in the clarity of what has to happen, but something that I'm feeling more pessimistic about now than when I wrote the book, obviously, is that the Democratic establishment that helped the Republicans lead this war on immigrants that helped bring us Donald Trump, they're not on their way out. Joe Biden will, unless something unexpected happens, be their Democratic nominee. So I'm not optimistic about that. <laughs> but what then again makes me more optimistic is sort of stepping back from the capital P formal sphere of politics is that the whole bipartisan war on immigrants, particularly since the 1990s that I tell the story of in my book, took off because it had a bipartisan basis on the ground. Americans, not just white Americans, but black and Hispanic, Latino Americans, Americans across the board were pretty generally anti-immigrant in the early 90s. In 1994, this is Pew data, only 32% of Democrats agreed that immigrants today strengthen the country because of their hard work and talents. Just sort of a, you know, generic kind of how do you feel about immigrants question. 30% of Republicans agreed with that. A similar percentage, about 70% of Republicans and Democrats alike express negative feelings about immigrants. By 2016, 78% of Democrats agreed with the statement that immigrants strengthen the country because of their hard work and talents, whereas 35, only 35% of Republicans did. And so podcasts are not good places to talk about visual tools like graphs, but what you see in this graph is Republicans and Democrats having similarly low opinions about immigrants in 1994, and then a sharp divergence, particularly a divergence that explodes in 2006. What happens in 2006? That's when certain contradictions of the war, the bipartisan war on immigrants begin to explode. What happens is that the right wing of that bipartisan movement goes too far for the establishment. The U.S. House in December 2005 passes a bill called the Sensenbrenner Bill, which would have criminalized mere undocumented presence in this country, which then and now is just a civil offense. It would have made it a crime, a federal crime. It would have also criminalized providing aid to undocumented immigrants. The bill didn't go anywhere in the Senate. 
but its extremity truly alarmed immigrants and anyone with a connection to immigrants in this country really was seen by the Latino community as a racist attack on Latinos as a whole. And that is what prompted this massive wave of immigrant rights protests in 2006, really one of only a handful of significant protest movements in that entire decade of U.S. history, including, as you mentioned earlier, the May Day protests, which really poignantly, I think, reclaimed May Day as International Workers' Day in the country where in the 19th century, labor radicals made it International Workers' Day, but where it had since been all but forgotten thanks to nativism and anti-communism, etc. Anyhow, you have in late 2005, going into 2006, this division emerge where the Republican right radicalizes too much and excites a reaction on the immigrant left. And from that moment on, a sharp divergence begins where Democratic voters are increasingly pro-immigrant, Republicans become increasingly radicalized in their opposition to immigrants. So there's no longer on the ground a bipartisan basis for the war on immigrants. The problem is that Democratic elected officials are still operating within the model of the bipartisan war, if less so than before. But I'm optimistic about where people are at. I'm less optimistic about the politicians who represent us. Well, Dan... We may all be screaming out for optimism right now, and your book, I think, refuses to give us a cheap fix, for which I'm grateful. And I think it's a book we need now more than ever. It arms us with the facts and the long history that we need to understand, especially going forward. So thank you very much, and I want to encourage all listeners to buy this book and finish it. (laughs) Or at least buy it. (laughs) Or just buy it. Um, and pass it around. It's a great book. I learned so much. So thank you, Dan, for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Stephanie. So did that conversation pique your interest? Why not pick up a copy of Daniel's book and let us know what you think on Twitter? Or if you're feeling brave, why not spark up a conversation over dinner? Is Trump stomping in the bipartisan footprints made in more recent history under Clinton, Bush and Obama? Is he a creature of American history, building on an existing securitization, mass incarceration, and war on terror agenda that has led to the growing stigmatization and demonization of immigrants? Or is his brand of migrant hate really something new, rogue, incomprehensible? And as we like democracy on this podcast, here's a shout out. If you have the right to do it, don't forget to register to vote. And definitely stay tuned, because we have a couple more really exciting topics to bring to you on immigration and democracy. This year's election, yes, but also Black Panther and the role of fashion in social change. If you liked today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Ziran Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Ziran Wang. Special thanks to our guest, Daniel Denver, and our guest host, Dr. Stephanie DeGoyer. And thank you for tuning in.